FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. I think it's safe to say that this is the kind of day that political journalists live for. A rush of news uh, coming at us. Uh, we're waiting for uh, Judge McBurney to release the excerpts of the special grand jury report uh, on their investigation of overturning the 2020 uh, presidential election here in Georgia. We know it's going to be limited but we think we'll get some clues as to what the uh, special grand jury concluded about potential criminal uh, indictments. Um, the AJC broke a big story that relates to that, which we're going to talk about in just a minute, uh, an attempt that we hadn't even been aware of before, uh, calls to something like 120 state legislators from the Trump campaign asking them to help overturn the election. We'll get to that in a minute. And then, of course, um, we finally uh, had the first rollout of a presidential campaign uh, uh, on the Republican side challenging Donald Trump. Uh, Nikki Haley made her announcement uh, public yesterday. And uh, later today, uh, Senator Tim Scott in South Carolina launches what could be the first steps towards his presidential bid. So, so much to talk about. We got three great journalists and one of our favorite political science professors today to talk about all of that with us. Kevin Riley, editor-in-chief of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Thank you for being here. Bill, on a day like this, I am glad to be in the hands of such a skilled host as yourself, because I can barely figure out what's going on and keep up with it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm going to count on all of you to help me with just that. Uh, that includes you, Chuck Williams, uh, reporter at WRBL-TV in Columbus, but a veteran. Uh, journalist in Columbus, certainly one of the very best-known journalists in uh, that section of Georgia after his long career in print. Uh, Chuck, how are you today? I'm doing great, Bill. I just want to commend you and Patricia Murphy for the interview y'all did earlier this week with Michael Thurman. I listened to the whole thing, and that was an outstanding interview, very informative. Y'all did a great job well, thank you for that. I, I think a lot of the credit goes to what an extraordinary uh, life and career uh, Mike Thurman has had. We were just able to tap into it. But thank you for that, uh, Chuck. Meg Kennard is back with us, Associated Press uh, reporter working out of uh, South Carolina covering politics and legal affairs. Uh, Meg, I just had a chance a little while ago to read the, the uh, piece you filed in the aftermath of Nikki Haley's announcement speech yesterday. You're really, you know, we talk about how Georgia's in the heart of the action. And, of course, you cover news in Georgia as well. But with two potential presidential candidates in South Carolina, you're really in the heart of the action over there, too. There's never a dull moment covering politics anywhere in the South, but particularly it seems lately in South Carolina, where it just kind of feels like ground zero on both sides of the aisle for the presidential primaries. So never, uh, never a dearth of things to cover, that's for sure. Well, I'm very glad that you're with us today, and I'm, I'm certainly glad to welcome you back, Kurt Young, Professor of Political Science and Department Chair of Political Science at Clark Atlanta University. Kurt, how are you? 
I'm doing very well, Bill. We're sort of going through the 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 lull after the crazy start of the semester, and so now I'm kind of getting into my groove, as they say, and uh, yeah. really looking forward to the conversation this morning. Yeah, I think it should be pretty interesting. All right, Kevin Riley. Um, we don't have. We're all refreshing our, the site of the Fulton County Superior Court constantly to see if the report from McBurney uh, is released while we're on the air. And as soon as it is, if it is while we're on, we'll turn to it. But in the meantime, Kevin, um, you all uh, uh, published a story today that, to the best of my knowledge, is an exclusive uh, from Dave Wickard. And if you don't mind, I'll just read uh, the, the lead and then ask you to go into it in a little bit more detail. We're still kind of absorbing it because none of us has had a chance really to see it in detail uh, until just a little while ago. With his chances of winning Georgia slipping away in December 2020, then-President Donald Trump hit upon a novel scheme to stay in power. State legislators would name him the winner. So while his allies spun dubious tales of voting fraud at the Georgia Capitol, Trump's campaign called nearly 120 Republican legislators to ask whether they would appoint a slate of presidential electors who would vote for Trump instead of Democrat Joe Biden. This comes from the January 6th investigation, but it hadn't been public until now, and it's really kind of an astonishing report, Kevin. And according to the documents provided uh, to the January 6th committee by the campaign, 30 Republicans were ready, willing, and able to do so. Now, I'll just, you know, just one caveat. Some of those legislators are disputing the accuracy of the logs that the campaign provided to the January 6th committee and say they did not agree to that. So the story is developing. It's available on our website. People can look at it for themselves. You, uh, you uh, Wickard reports that in all about 30 Republican legislators of the 120 called expressed some level of support for allowing the General Assembly to name Trump the winner of the presidential election. And the report that uh, you've published today includes the call log that was established by uh, uh, presumably the campaign uh, people who were uh, assigned to make these calls to keep track of what each legislator, how they responded. Some went to voicemail, uh, others didn't, What for whatever reason, said they didn't want to talk. Uh, but but the call log is published, too. So um, Chase and Natalie, we ought to put up a link to this really interesting story on our um, uh, website, I think. Um, Chuck, again, we're not we're going to absorb this, and we can talk about it more tomorrow when we've had a chance to really look at this call log and and uh, can go into it more depth. But in the meantime, Chuck, you know, what this does is extends what we'd already known, which was that there was a fake slate of electors uh, led by GOP state chair David Schaefer that came together at the Capitol with a plan to, uh, uh, to try to oust the uh, Biden electors and give Donald Trump uh, the White House. And we know from the January 6th committee, Chuck, that that plan was hatched in the Oval Office of the White House. You know, there's so much, Bill, that when we were talking about this before we were on there, there's so much we don't know about what's about to come out 
you know, and I don't know how much of it we'll get today, but there's no doubt that this is going to go, like you said, to the highest levels, the planning of this. And that appears apparent now. I mean, you can almost hear it when you listen to the Trump Raffensperger phone call. That was clearly this goes to the highest levels. And I'm like Kevin and and Megan everybody else. I can't wait to see what comes out today and what that leads us to look for going down the road as this grand jury as the grand jury and the as the Fulton County DA's office continues its work. Meg? Yeah, you know, when we hear about the beginnings of this and the phone calls that we've all known about and the other information that has been public for some time as it relates to Georgia in 2020, we all assume and knew to some extent how much planning there had to have been, the other previous steps that would have necessitated, been necessitated before you know, these other things that we knew about. So kind of getting glimpses into that process and what it purportedly looked like on behalf of the Trump campaign is kind of fascinating. I mean, we're all political nerds here, so we may be a little bit more into it than than most people. But I really do think that the more information that's made available about kind of like how all of that process came together um, specifically there in, in Georgia is absolutely fascinating. And I, I you know, I, I don't know how much exactly more we're going to get from what's released today, but the tea leaf reading will absolutely continue. Uh, Kurt, I want to get to you in a second, but very quickly, Kevin, um, we, we do need to point out that uh, some of the lawmakers who are cited as saying in the call log that, yes, they would be willing to support this effort have denied to uh, Wickard that they did that. They, they claim they were incorrectly listed as favoring this. And we, we should make that clear if we're going to post a link to the story. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, let's remember, this is evidence gathered by mm -hmm. the House Select Committee on the January 6th attack at the U.S. Capitol. And so it is a document from the Trump campaign, and it reflects whatever the person who made those calls and, and people who tracked them said happened. That does not mean that everything they said happened is true. I mean, I think if we know anything about Trump cam uh, the Trump campaign organizations, we can't count on things being 100% true that they say. So I think there is a cautionary note here. But in the end, lawmakers will have to address it because uh, they're this is in the public record, and they'll have to um, come out and say one way or another where they stood on the matter. Absolutely. Kurt, um, we know that we're not going to get much uh, from uh, McBurney today. He's already made it clear that he believes most of the uh, report that the special grand jury was required to publish under the rules of special grand juries, uh, much of it he believes needs to remain uh, sequestered while Fannie Willis looks at whether she is going to bring indictments against any of the people who were targets of this thing. But Kurt, uh, we do suspect that she must be looking very seriously at, at bringing charges, or else it might not be as important to keep this thing uh, private at this point. I mean, that's the first clue we have, that she's serious about taking potential criminal action against some of these people. Yeah, and that, that, that word imminent, continues to ring in our ears, right? Uh, signaling that something is on the horizon. And uh, we've we've known for some time that 
of all the legal challenges facing the previous administration and certainly facing former President Trump, the case in Georgia may be the one that's that's closest to some type of legal action uh, in the most immediate term. So uh, all eyes have been on Georgia for a long time. And I think that uh, um, Fannie uh, Willis is following along a path, clearly acknowledging that all eyes are on her and the decisions that she make, which helps to uh, support the notion of being very cautious going forward. Um, uh, I want to add to a point, though, Bill, if I can, that Chuck and, and Meg uh, made um, regarding not really knowing what's coming. And, uh, of course, we can perhaps assume that uh, Fannie Willis may have some insights that she's not sharing, which uh, perhaps also uh, Judge McBurney will also be sensitive to. But, you know, Bill, it's sort of like putting together a puzzle without the picture on the box to guide you, right? In terms of how it makes sense of it. But you're figuring out pieces. You're figuring out where pieces fit, right? We we, we heard the the call uh, made by um, President Trump uh, to Brad Raffensperger, and so we were able to put that piece together. Other pieces are falling in place. And now you have a picture of a puzzle that sort of paints the, the, the broader picture. We get an idea. But there's still those blank pieces that are we, we that we'll find out as we go go along and I think this is what's happening now right pieces are coming out while we are still able to paint a broader picture of what occurred the nuggets that are coming out pieces of evidence that are coming out notwithstanding the great point that Kevin made about being very cautious in terms of uh, um some of the assumptions being made um but I think what we're looking at here is a continuation of small pieces coming together to paint the, the broader picture and giving us a more complete understanding of what occurred Meg, uh, McBurney ruled that the introduction, the conclusion can be released. But then he added something else that I think is also fascinating. A section in which the special grand jury uh, seems to have come to the conclusion that some witnesses lied. Now, we don't know yet whether their, their f apparent fabrications will lead to criminal charges against them or not, but we're going to see uh, apparently information about people who did not tell the truth when they testified in front of this special grand jury. That is fascinating to me. And you know, having covered different legal cases throughout the years, the 18 years that I've been with AP now, you know, having that, like if you're covering a regular trial as opposed to something before a grand jury, it's rare that you get to like hear from the juror level of the case, you know, why they really did what they did. It's up to them if they talk to media afterward or whatever. But for this report, obviously with a special grand jury, this is different. And so being able to hear from them, from these dozens of witnesses that we heard from over the course of what was it like seven months, you know, to to see these are the people that we believed and these are the ones that we really don't think we're telling the truth. Like just to know that from the public's perspective on top of whatever um, the DA may do herself with the case from this point forward, that to me is extremely interesting. And of course, all of us are going to be then going after those <laughs> those public officials perhaps on that list and saying, okay, so the grand juror said this, what's the real deal? What's the comment from you? So that'll be a different angle on it as well. Chuck, jump in. You know, it's interesting we're going to get uh, at some point in this process, Bill and Meg, somebody saying, we just don't believe them. They were not telling us the truth. And everybody wants to know, okay, 
who are those people? Because you know, as journalists, when you're doing, when you're interviewing or working on a story, or you're covering a trial, like Meg was talking about, you have your own opinions about who's telling, who's being straight with you and who's not. And it's going to be fascinating for them to say, who, for us to get their take on who they think was not being truthful. Bill, you know, I got to go back to point Meg made because I think it's a really good one. Um, so I was on a jury a few years back um, in a double murder case and ended up as the foreman. It, so it was a really powerful experience. But you have to get like everybody to agree to things. Now, a grand jury is different. I've never been on a grand jury, but they operate differently. But the fact that you could get that number of people to agree on what a report says and to make a strong statement, apparently, about some of the witnesses appearing to be lying. I mean, that's a very strong statement and a powerful consensus. So I think that's going to be a big, big deal at some point. And and again, I'm, you know, like Meg, I'm like dying to find out exactly what they said and who they're talking about. <laughs> you know, I, Kevin, while Paul's at your court, I, one of the other things that, first of all, you're reporting today about these calls from the Trump campaign to 120 Republican legislators, the Trump call to Raffensperger, Trump's attacks on Brian Kemp, it it it's, continues to puzzle me that Georgia became such an important focus because Trump could would not have, even if Georgia had overturned the election, if they'd done exactly what Trump wanted, he still would have lost the electoral vote. And yet, Kevin, Georgia became this total obsession for Donald Trump. Yeah, I think that probably happened for two reasons. First, uh, it must have seemed like friendly and, you know, possibly the a territory that presented lots of possibilities for the campaign. Right. And then the other is don't forget what they were really, really hoping to do was get an intervention by the Supreme Court just to slow everything down and keep, you know, the the electoral vote on January 6th from somehow happening, maybe delayed. And, you know, so when you really dig into it, Georgia just was the place they thought they could have uh, success, apparently. And uh, it didn't work out that way. All right, so uh, before we leave this subject, Chuck, let's just make clear what happens next. Um, we're going to see some of the report today. Uh, Kurt has already used the word imminent because we know that when she went and testified, when she went before McBurney, Fonnie Willis, and said, please don't release this report because indictments may be imminent, uh, we have the term imminent. Uh, has been stretched and, and has uh, the time the time for imminent remains uncertain, Chuck. But you've got to imagine that we are getting pretty close to Willis announcing something, and that would be you the know, next step. It would be, and I think that's where it is. But imminent, I, I go to Tamar's outstanding reporting on this. It was where I think uh, I think the district attorney told her there's legal imminent, there's reporter imminent. So there's there's a difference in the two. I've never quite heard that distinction. I'd love to hear an editor like Kevin tell me the difference between legal imminent and reporter imminent because I certainly don't know what it is. But imminent, I do know what it means. It does mean it's coming. All right. Um, I, I, let's do this. Uh, uh, we're going to turn the page. Um, and, and I think as long as we've been talking about Donald Trump, we, we should uh, start the next segment um, and talk to you, Meg, about the Nikki Haley announcement yesterday 
and how candidates like a Nikki Haley are going to walk the tightrope <laughs> in terms of uh, the MAGA people out there, MAGA people out there, and what uh, some would call the more mainstream wing of the Republican Party. Uh, all of that was pretty clear in her speech yesterday. So we'll get to that and a lot more. Let's pause for these messages first. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Clark Atlanta's Kurt Young, WRBL-TV's Chuck Williams, Kevin Riley of the AJC, and Meg Kennard the Associated Press are with us today. Let me start off by mentioning, Meg, before I turn to you on this. Uh, Nikki Haley may or may not end up being a major contender for the Republican nomination for president. Early polling shows her morning consult just did a poll. She's in low single digits. Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump take up all the oxygen there. So why do we spend much time on this? Well, the answer is clear. It's because she is the first Republican to decide she will challenge Donald Trump and because the way in which she runs her campaign, the messaging, is going to tell us a lot about how people plan to position themselves in the Republican Party of today. Uh, is that a fair enough assessment? I think you hit on it really, really well. And I will say it was at least if not four years ago, that I wrote um, an article that talked about the tightrope that Nikki Haley was going to be walking. It was she served for two years during the Trump administration. But even then, knowing that we assumed Nikki Haley would be running for office, a higher office at some point, she was going to have to navigate exactly what you just laid out, those waters of having been affiliated with Donald Trump, but also potentially being in a Republican Party that wasn't sure what to do with him. And I think that's still exactly where we are. She's not alone in that. You know, she is alone in being the first major Republican to also join the race with him. But there are at least a handful of other former Trump administration officials who are thinking about taking that same dive. You know, Mike Pence, Mike Pompeo, those two come immediately to mind. So, you know, she's kind of going to be their test case, I suppose. We've already seen the Trump campaign having a, a lot of choice words and um, direct confrontations with what she laid out during her speech yesterday. So if that's the playbook for how candidates that challenge Donald Trump for the GOP nomination in 2024, if that's how it goes, then I think she's giving us a preview of a tough campaign. But she is out there first, at least among the major candidates. Um, you shared a byline on the speech with uh, your colleague at AP, Michelle Price. And here's what you said in the lead. Republican Nikki Haley launched her 2024 presidential campaign on Wednesday betting that her boundary-breaking career as a woman and person of color who governed in the heart of the South before representing the U.S. on the world stage, his U.N. ambassador, of course, can overcome entrenched support for her one-time boss, former uh, President uh, Donald Trump. And, and um, I do think we have to say, uh, uh, Meg, 
that uh, Haley, all of those things should, in normal times, <laughs> position Haley rather well. But we know the Republican Party is having an identity crisis that makes it hard to know whether any of that will work in her favor, especially because there are many things about her philosophy that she doesn't share in common with that MAGA wing of the party. She's not an isolationist. She talked about foreign affairs, strong military in her speech yesterday. Um, she talked about generational uh, change. But, uh, but there are a lot of reasons why she should be, under normal circumstances, a pretty capable candidate. I've seen it written and I've actually heard it from voters and some consultants that I've talked to as I report throughout this campaign that the message that Nikki Haley is out of the gate with right now would have really put her on a path toward ascendancy in a previous campaign if we weren't talking about 2024, if we were looking back at maybe 2012 um, or even beyond that. So, yes, the, the messaging that we're hearing from her is sounds really great, um, you know, on its surface. I mean, she is a she's a female candidate. She's a candidate who's the daughter of immigrants from India. She has a rich um, personal biography, and she also has lots of experience um, at different levels of government. So, you know, those are all things that seem that they lead into um, on paper a really great candidate. But you're absolutely right that the Republican Party has been kind of having an identity crisis um, since 2015, I would say at least. So it, it's kind of remains to be seen if all of those ingredients will make for a successful recipe for a, a GOP candidate this time. Kurt, it was, it's really fascinating because uh, she pegged a good uh, portion of her speech towards generational change, time for younger leaders. Uh, she mentioned Joe Biden in that regard over and over again. She never once mentioned the name Donald Trump, although it's clear she was obviously talking about him. And you sort of suspect that for people like Pence, if he gets in, Pompeo and Haley, uh, the name Trump is going to be like Voldemort. He who must not be named, you know? Um, <laughs> But, but, but Kurt, she said, we need a mental acuity test for candidates 75 years and older. If, if that isn't a, a very, a very uh, clear uh, uh, attack on whether old people like Donald Trump and Joe Biden should be running for president, I don't know what is. It goes hand in hand with this notion of the need for new, new generational leadership, right? On, on, on at the very same moment that such a strategy is successful, if it is against Donald, uh, against um, Joseph Biden, it'll likewise be effective against Donald Trump, and perhaps even in the reverse because of the primary uh, coming before a potential general, right? If she's successful, uh, and I think Meg uh, makes a great point. She, I see her in many ways as a candidate who belongs to the Republican Party of the past, trying to rec recreate it in the future. Uh, she seems to be taking a shot at reestablishing some of the very, very basic elements of what we understood to be Republican Party uh, platform uh, items, uh, strong military, strong foreign policy, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the extent to which that kind of message will be communicated in the party that's still holding fast to the uh, to Trumpism, perhaps without Trump, it really makes it very difficult for her to navigate the current realities of the party in trying to uh, move towards the future of the party. 
Kevin? Bill, I'm going to be honest with you. I, I hope there's never a mental acuity test to be on this show because I feel like I'll be in trouble. So I need a little reassurance there that you'll never do that. But go, going back to what Meg said about it's really kind of a kooky situation. I mean, when you get right down to it and it, it, the way the Republican Party has evolved, because first Haley said she would never run against Trump and then Trump sort of encouraged her to run. And now she has decided to run. And then Trump attacked her. But really, the conventional wisdom is Trump would like lots of Republicans in this thing, right? Because that way, his 25, 30 percent support in a primary season puts gives him an advantage. So it is going to be very strange and interesting to see who else jumps in. Um, Chuck, uh, I Meg certainly has watched, uh, I think, Nikki Haley far more than I have. But I watched as I watched her. Uh, speech in Charleston yesterday, I do have to say, I get why she's so appealing. She's um, a, a, a candidate uh, with a positive uh, view of America in many ways. In many ways, she talks about the greatness of America. She's very upbeat. She's polished and all that. And yet, there were plenty of dog whistles in that speech yesterday, uh, Chuck. Take it from me, America is not a racist uh, country. Uh, attacking the 1619 uh, project, talking about uh, uh, the fact she said, quote, self-loathing is a virus more dangerous than any pandemic and claims that that's what Democrats uh, promote is that they are part of that self-loathing culture. There was there was in, in some of the parts of that speech, despite the upbeat nature of a lot of it, there was uh, a, a touch of the Donald Trump American carnage inauguration speech. No question. I, I've seen Nikki Haley live one time. It was back in July, June, June July of uh, last year. She was in Columbus campaigning for Jeremy Hunt, a failed Republican congressional candidate that she was supporting, that Tom Cotton was supporting, that Josh Hawley was supporting. And she spoke to a small group of about 100 in a hotel ballroom at a rally that was kind of a made-for-TV event for Jeremy Hunt. And it was near the end of the campaign, which he lost to Chris West. And those same, when you say political dog whistles, Bill, she was using in that speech to a very highly partisan Republican group that were pushing Jeremy Hunt. Um, And there were people there I know who voted for Chris West who showed up just to hear Nikki Haley, because it was like they were getting a glimpse of what started yesterday. So, yeah, I mean, there's no question. She understands political rhetoric in a way, and Meg can speak to this a lot better than I can, but she understands political rhetoric and how it plays with the base. Yeah, I mean, you know, certainly. Nikki Haley has spent a lot of time, as you note, over the past campaign cycle or two out there doing exactly what you mentioned from Columbus from last year and meeting people in other states, showing that she is there um, to support their candidates who align with um, the values that she's going for and that she she advocates for. But yeah, let's let's be clear. There were absolutely a lot of points that came out in that speech yesterday that weren't a surprise. I mean, these are things that 
we've heard her reference to the the line of America is not a racist country. That's something that she's mentioned on, I believe, um, Republican national convention stages, um, as well as in lots of other interviews through the years. And and Nikki Haley, as we know, being a non-white candidate has a position that's unique, at least among the others in the field right now, um, to be able to make those statements and kind of you know generate a different level of interest um, than than perhaps some others. So, you know, there's there's a lot of messaging at play. We've heard her stay on very much on her talking points um, when she does these kinds of um, these rollouts. But, you know, I'll be following here in South Carolina and in other states along the trail to see if we see an evolution in some of that messaging. You know, this is the very beginning of the campaign. There are a lot of lines that get thrown out by candidates and you want to see kind of what the resonance is before it becomes a concrete piece of that stump speech. We heard Donald Trump test out lines a lot of times at these big rallies throughout his campaigns. So we'll see if she sticks to it or if there's some other things thrown in or if if the whole thing kind of takes on a different vibe. Well, and again, one of the reasons we're spending time on Nikki Haley uh, uh, is because, again, she's the first one out of the box. But she, Meg, down the line, will face the same issues that others who challenge Trump uh, will as well. Uh, yesterday's a freebie. Everybody gets kind of a freebie in their announcement speech. Yes, there are going to be criticisms of how the candidate presented herself or himself, but it's only in the months ahead when people ask her about Donald Trump, about his MAGA beliefs, um, that she will really have to prove where she stands on that. You can't duck that uh, all the way through and expect to walk the tightrope into the nomination. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's it's being out here first. Everybody gets their day. As you know, we were with some other potential candidates yesterday throughout the country. South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem. She was like, hey, asked about Nikki Haley. This is her day. This is I'm not going to step on it. So that that's nice. That is a bit of reverence. We heard some messaging from former President Trump when he was first asked about Haley um, and her potential candidacy before she officially got in. And he was like, yeah, sure. I encouraged her to do this. I told her to follow her heart, all those things. But yesterday, out of the gate, when it's official, out come the releases of here are all the things that she said that I would argue on behalf of the Trump campaign aren't true and, and aren't the way that they should be presented. Oh, and by the way, here's that time she said in 2021 to me um, that she wouldn't run against Donald Trump and made sure to include that tweet, too. So, you know, the, the gloves are off to some degree, but. Um, you know, we'll see how it goes as other people get into the race. And there's not just that one focal point um, on behalf of the Trump campaign that is right now Nikki Haley. Kevin Riley, one final point uh, before we move on. If you were to ask someone who didn't hadn't been watching uh, the news, reading the news, um, which party would have a, a candidate for president who was uh, uh, of Indian descent and a woman? And an African-American male, would you really say it's the Republican Party? I suppose if you're, you know, a more mainstream Republican, to some extent, you celebrate the fact that you have a little bit of diversity that you can uh, uh, brag about. Actually, Kurt, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that first. Well, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, it's this, this, this that age old discussion between the difference between politics of substance versus politics of symbol, right? Um, and you can't have a situation where the the face of diversity 
in a party or any kind of other political entity uh, may suggest a particular kind of progressive or, or, or outward look towards uh, um, inclusion. But when you dig down into the policies and you look at the rhetoric and the climate that is uh, created um, by uh, uh, the main tendencies within that, that political entity, the two sometimes collide. And so while, again, we can point to uh, symbols of, 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 of openness and symbols of pro progress and progressive politics and, 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 and inclusion, uh, when we dig that into the substance of substance of the of the um, of the zeitgeist, uh, it may suggest something very very different. Bill, Kevin, Bill, I was I was talking to a Republican operative, a, a wise one who appears on the show from time to time, and we got into the Haley campaign and we talked about her ability to raise money and the timing of the announcement. But he made a point that stuck with me, and it was this: he said he's always believed Republicans would elect elect the first female president. And his logic was this, a female uh, nominated by Republicans would get Republican support, of course, and Democratic women who would be intensely interested in supporting a woman for president are also going to support a, a candidate like that, potentially. So I think it's an interesting dynamic. I, I mean, it remains to be seen how far Nikki Haley will get with all of this and whether she will emerge as a leading candidate. But um, it certainly uh, helps uh, those the, the political junkies among us. I mean, we've got some exciting times ahead to pay attention to. All right, let's do this. Let's get to our final break of the show. We'll be back with uh, a little bit more uh, after these messages. Chuck Williams, uh, there has been a lot of talk uh, among uh, Democrats and Republicans about uh, runoff elections and how the voter is getting weary of them. Candidates are tired of having to raise the enormous amounts of money in the major races to uh, run them. And, and so there, there are some questions as to whether or not the legislature this session will take action to change the runoff system whether uh, it's ranked choice voting or whatever. But now we do have a bill from a Democratic uh, member, uh, which makes it a little harder to get through the entire majority Republican body that eliminates runoffs entirely and says general elections ought to be decided by a plurality. Uh, that's the only measure that's come forward so far, Chuck. You know, and... You know, it's interesting. Do reporters get a vote in this? If reporters get a vote, I'm voting to get rid of rights. I mean, but I suspect my bosses at the TV stations would probably disagree with my vote on that one. Um, uh, I think runoffs are a vestige of a political past that was put in place years ago for a reason that uh, Kirk could speak to probably a lot better than I can. And I think it makes a lot of sense to go to a plurality. But do you need a bar? Is the bar 45%? Do you have to have had 45% of the vote to get there? So is it a plurality with a caveat? That's my question. Um, well, Kurt, what, what, of course, Chuck is referring to is that it was Denmark Groover uh, one of the good old boys back in the day in the Georgia legislature from Macon, in, in those days the Yellow Dog Democrat, who uh, uh, pushed the runoff system in Georgia 
uh, as a way to keep African-American candidates from winning uh, uh, general elections. Exactly. It occurred at a time where you're beginning to see the influx of of black voters into the uh, um, political process, the electoral process, not only as voters, but also running for office. And you also had it uh, co connected in some in some ways um, um, to the long tradition of the white primaries, right, where you have a situation in the past where um, there were steps before the actual general uh, elections that put in place impediments for uh, black participation and and and, and um, black successful uh, uh, access to not only the ballot but also to political office, and so I, I agree with with Chuck. It's a vestige of the past, uh, along with other discussions that we're having right now, uh, in terms of reflecting. Um, and, and so uh, I think that it is uh, time to have this conversation. It's time to have this conversation. But there are caveats, as someone just said. If not for these runoffs, you might not have had the same type of political climate emerging in the state that has produced two uh, uh, um, senatorial elections for uh, Raphael Warnock. All right, so they they it, it may be an unintended consequence, but it still allows us to have a discussion, a broad and more complex discussion about where exactly we are in terms of how these particular mechanisms work out in the American body politic in, in general, and certainly in Georgia politics in particular. You know, Meg, whether it's Georgia or really any state, um, the notion of a plurality victory uh, does rub some, some people the wrong way. <clears throat> uh, a feeling that a candidate ought to win a majority uh, to be able to show that she or he uh, has the support of, of the majority of the people in a, in a given state or whatever uh, uh, to, to govern. And it's, there's something sort of ironic about the fact, to go back to Nikki Haley just for a second, that we're talking about maybe plurality is enough when one of the points that she's making earlier in her campaign is to warn Republicans to remember that in seven out of the late last eight elections, presidential elections, the Republican did not win the popular vote. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I've now heard her say that in the past couple of days, at least six or seven times and read it on Twitter. So, you know, she is she is very adamant in making that at least part of her um, part of the way that she's approaching things. But, yeah, these numbers and, and, you know, as Kurt just pointed out, like where where is the number if we do put that caveat in there? Like, where should it be? Um, you know, if if the um, runoff system were to be done away with. So, yeah, I mean, I went through a, a primary cycle here in 2016 in South Carolina where Donald Trump was nominated with 32 and or won the primary here with 32 and a half percent because that field was so big. And so if you're dealing with big fields of candidates, I mean, it would be very unlikely then that if you have that number set too high, somebody's going to get there. Um, so that's certainly something that needs to be taken into consideration um, and, you know, whether we're talking about presidential primaries or Senate elections, you know, I, I think that that's it's a very interesting issue. That's for sure. Um, Kevin, jump in on this. Well, I, I think I want to take a moment to explain what Chuck said about reporters uh, not enjoying uh, runoffs and how it extends the campaign season and especially through holidays. But the television advertising and the money that pours into Georgia uh, because of these runoffs is a big deal, certainly to local television stations. Um, here's what I keep thinking about, right? Georgia keeps emerging as a really important state. Uh, we've had this discussion about moving the primary on the Democratic side. We, you know, all this stuff is going on. And there's no question that the runoffs have been a big part of putting Georgia as the only 
important political campaign going on for a month a couple times over the past like four four years uh i don't know do we really want to give that up i you know setting aside all the history and all the outcomes i mean i think it's worth talking about all right um we're gonna watch and see how things progress we do expect some legislation uh from republicans i suspect i i imagine plurality vote isn't gonna go very far who knows uh, but we'll see how this develops as the legislature legislation legislative session uh, continues. Uh, Chuck, uh, let's talk again about culture wars. We've we've spent a couple of uh, minutes on the show this week talking about the fact that a lot of Republicans, especially the new leadership, said they want to avoid hot button culture issues um, because they want to stick to bread and butter, meat and potatoes kind of business. And yet, and yet, Chuck, the culture war issues have really started surfacing. And uh, let's just talk about one that developed yesterday to start with. Um, we now have uh, some Republicans uh, and some of them leadership in the Senate who would criminalize school librarians who let students check out books found to be obscene. And, and Chuck, as we talk about something like that, first of all, I'm not quite sure who decides what book is obscene or not. My question is, do the leaders really expect they're going to pass this kind of measure, or is this virtue signaling to the base that isn't going to go very far, in, in the same way that some of the other issues uh, in the culture wars are, are uh, we're dealing with them right now? Chuck? Bill, when you really look at what you call cultural wars, I mean, I call it base politics. It's it's simply that. It's base politics. And these are base political moves. Now, some of the base moves will win passage. I mean, you look at the abortion legislation that passed in Georgia. That was base politics, cultural wars, whatever you want to call it. But Georgians are a kind of a different lot right now. It is sort of a purple place. I mean, is there another state in the union with a solid red constitutional officer base and two Democratic U.S. senators? So you've got to look at the playing field that these cultural wars are being fought on. The General Assembly is one thing, but when you take it out from under the dome and you put it anywhere from Hayhira to, you know, to downtown Atlanta, you get out from under that dome. It's a very different, different game we're talking about. And I'm not sure if that makes sense, but I mean, I think to answer your question, though, I think they are more designed toward base and primary politics than they are actual well, yeah, and Meg, that raises the question, I think, of whether or not we as journalists sometimes get caught up with this, these kind of issues um, without pausing to think about whether they actually are going to have much of a chance of passage or not. Now, I say that and also say there's a danger in not doing covering them. The abortion law in yep. Georgia, nobody expected that to pass, uh, but but it did. Uh, so we couldn't afford to, you can't afford to ignore these things, Meg. 
Right. It is a fine line. I mean, in some circumstances, you know that if leadership is not behind a measure to some degree, it doesn't have a chance of going anywhere. And so then our job is not to do PR for whoever is advancing that bill. But on the other hand, you're absolutely right that we can't ignore issues that even if it's not something that, you know, we as people or citizens or residents might have at top of mind as what the important issue of the session is going to be, that doesn't mean that other people might have it as top of their plate. And it might really be something that's going to have a little bit more steam than you might think. I mean, I remember talking to lawmakers here in South Carolina as last session wrapped up and we looked forward to the one that just began last month. And they were like, yeah, we're going to come in and we're going to get all these things done. There's going to be these these financial things we're going to talk about and fentanyl and you know all kinds of other things. And then what are they doing? They're debating abortion again and talking about a full ban on abortion in the House. So, you know, that's that doesn't mean that um, I would have forecast that that was exactly where they were going to be since all intents, you know, led toward other issues. Um, but, you know, we do have to, as political journalists, try to keep our fingers on the pulse as much as we can about those issues that really do seem like they're gaining traction um, and see where they go from there. Kevin? Well, you know, we do a lot of polling at the AJC, and I haven't uh, yet seen rogue librarians emerge as a key issue uh, for voters. So, And I think that it's important to remember that your typical Georgian is concerned with the big things, right? Jobs, the economy, um, the environment, you know, making sure this is a great place to live. Their kids can be well-educated. And we have a chance in this session for our legislators to really take those things on because it's a non-political year and they don't have to maybe pay as much attention to getting votes from their base as as Chuck points out. Um, so that's my thing is we've got, this is a prosperous state. We'd like to stay that way. There are many problems to solve. Let's solve them. Let's not invent ones that uh, maybe don't shouldn't be a priority. Kurt, um, we're low on time, but give me a few, few, few thoughts on this, if you would, please. Yeah, this is, this is a fascinating conversation. And I, again, find myself agreeing with Chuck um, I, I struggle, Bill, with this notion of culture or identity politics. All politics are cultural and all politics reflect some level of social and, and, and cultural identity. Um, and so I, I, I certainly was thinking, as, as Chuck was talking about, the importance of the relationship between an abortion as a, quote, uh, um, um, identity politic or cultural politic. And now we're seeing it dominate actual mechanics of 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 of, of po policy politics if you will and i could imagine if we were having this yes go ahead finish your thought well i was just going to say i imagine if we were having this conversation back in the 1960s we'd be saying the same thing about race as identity politics and race as pop as politics yeah. po policy politics right yeah thank you we are chuck we're out of time except you got a big star-studded event in columbus Kate Capshaw, Steven Spielberg's wife. Tell us about that in about 30 seconds. Okay. I thought I was going to, the governor was going to be my top interview of the week. I've got a one-on-one -on -one with Kate Capshaw. She's opening an art exhibition <laughs> here at the Bud Bartlett Center at Columbus State. And uh, last night, she brought some of her Hollywood friends to Columbus. Um, Michelle Pfeiffer was sitting there unnoticed in a room in Columbus, Georgia not being bothered just sitting there listening to kate capshaw and amy Sherrill talk about art so and I'm you and you were at, 
and you weren't there. You were in Atlanta. All right, that's it. We're completely out of time. Meg Kennard, Kevin Riley, Chuck Williams, and Kurt Young, thanks for a great show. Back tomorrow with a lot more. In the meantime, take care. Stay healthy, everybody. <laughs>